Hi, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners. My new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now on sale. Publishers Weekly calls it masterful, and Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, an entertaining, eye-opening investigation. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple Podcast. Thank you very much. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. From chefs to mixologists, if you manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was built to make your pro kitchen life easier. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Get started by visiting getmees.com forward slash Andrew. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. That was this like connection and communication happening and a sharing of experimental you know techniques i was really into that for a couple of years i had my own blog so it would like push me to do my own i was 19 people were applying through the blog dms to like work for me and i'd have to tell them that i was a teenager and uh you know i'm still like on garmage that is the voice of chef brad kilgore of miami's marigold's brasserie the frozen pizza venture pizza freak Co. and many other projects past and present. Brad is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you are well. Our guest today is Chef Brad Kilgore, with whom I spent some wonderful time in Miami, Florida back in October when I was on book tour. More about Brad and his restaurant there, Marigold's, and his pizza venture, Pizza Freak Co. In just a moment, before I properly introduce him, I want to share, as I've been doing here for some months now, some notes on my dining adventures over the last week or so. First and most noteworthy for me anyway, was a road trip my wife Caitlin and I made to Philadelphia last weekend where Chef Omar Tate put on a tasting menu at Honeysuckle 
Provisions, and if you don't know, Honeysuckle Provisions is the grocery store and community space on which Omar and his wife and partner Sybil St. Aud Tate collaborate. I've interviewed Omar here on the show a couple of times, but I had never had his food, and that to me was something that needed uh, to be rectified. So when I saw he was doing a series of these dinners, I bought a ticket and we made the short trip to Philly to check it out, and I am so glad I did. It was a wonderful, thoughtful mingling of Omar's musings on various subjects, most of them race-related, and a really outstanding dinner. I had missed the very uh, well-covered pop-ups that Omar did before uh, creating Honeysuckle Projects and Honeysuckle Provisions with Sybil. Those went under the banner uh, just simply Honeysuckle, and they were uh, a series of pop-ups that got a lot of attention, most prominently, I think, probably in Esquire magazine. Anyway, it was it was a wonderful time. It was a very interesting uh, presentation, and to me, most importantly, because it was a dinner, the food was delicious. So if you are in or around the Philly area, as I say, the dinner is part of a series, and keep an eye out for other dinners they do. I do recommend it. Back home in New York City, uh, earlier this week, I attended a dinner at Naro, which is the most recent restaurant from the team behind Atomix and Attaboy. All of them are here in New York City. Naro is part of the uh, new wave of restaurants that opened a little while back at Rockefeller Center. Uh, this was a dinner in the private dining room. It was put on by our promotional partners at San Pellegrino. Uh, the food and the service, the presentation, the flavors, as always, with everything that that team behind these restaurants does, it was all just spot on. And the event was a dinner to kick off the application process for the San Pellegrino Young Chef Academy competition. Uh, a number of New York-based chefs who will be judges in that competition were there. Uh, Stefano Secchi from Resdora, Emma Benson from Aquavit, uh, Aisha Nurjaya from Shuket and Shuka, uh, Charlie Mitchell from uh, Clover Hill. It was uh, some of my favorite chefs and, and actually people in the industry in New York, uh, that group. Um, there was also some media there. Uh, the application window for the next uh, round of the competition opens in just a few days, and I'll be sharing some more information about it soon. But keep an ear out for it if you are a chef or cook under 30. I do think it's a pretty wonderful competition. Um, there's a lot... Uh, of relationships and whatnot that can come out of it, as well as the experience of being mentored by some of the chefs. So I would urge all of you out there who are under 30 uh, and think you might have the chops for this to consider applying. Again, I'll talk about that more in the near future. I also uh, went to see Oppenheimer. If you don't know, you gotta know, right? It's the three hour uh, biopic of Robert Oppenheimer, and it's directed by Christopher Nolan. I had seen it last summer. It was back in IMAX uh, because of all the uh, Oscar nominations that it's received. 
And my wife, Caitlin, had never seen it, felt like she kind of needed to. So uh, I went and saw it again. And funny enough, I enjoyed it more than her, even on my second viewing and her first viewing. I think that movie is a stunner. After dinner, we went uh, in search of food. We just wanted to grab a bite at the bar somewhere. And we ended up at Morea for the first time in about three years. By coincidence, it was on the same day that it was announced that the uh, restaurant was going to be uh, operating under the umbrella moving forward of major food group. That is, of course, Mario Carbone and Rich Teresi's organization. And Chef PJ Calapa, who I've known since he was the chef back at I Fiori several years ago, is now the chef de cuisine at Morea. And the food there was outstanding. I should probably mention um, that the PJ had already taken off for the night. We did get in there kind of late, um, but the team there was so nice to us and they kind of uh, flattered us and lavished us with some extra food. I was just going to have a pasta. We ended up having a three-course dinner, but um, still great. That restaurant is every bit as great uh, as it's ever been. Uh, on the entertainment front, I do want to mention that I saw the very moving film, All of Us Strangers, which quietly blew me away. I saw it just before the Oscar nominations. I was hoping maybe Andrew Scott, the, star, the main star, would get a nod. He did not. The movie actually got nominated for nothing, which I felt kind of bad about, but it is a, a tremendous film uh, and stayed with me for days. Okay, that's the update on my dining and entertainment life. One last thing I want to mention before I introduce Brad, I received the following DM from a listener recently on Instagram. I have not asked their permission to share it, so I've omitted just a few details that would give away the sender. I also did a little light editing to adjust some of the uh, language as it pertains to what I'm about to read you, but here's the, here's the message I received, and it's not the first or only one I've received uh, along these lines. Here it is. Hey, Andrew, wanted to thank you for advertising Mies. It saved our company so much time this weekend as we operated our blank experience. Uh, again, I uh, omitted that detail and cooked for 150 people more than 10 hours away from home in the middle of nowhere, all over wood fire. We were able to calculate our recipes on the fly during prep and scale them properly. It also helped the bartenders in scaling their cocktail recipes. I would never have known about Mies without your show. So before I thank Mies, I felt it important to thank the messenger. And this brings me to a question we ask here on all of our feature interview episodes. Have you checked out Mies yet? And if not, as... You can tell from that DM, I encourage you to do it. Mies is a wonderful tool. It is the recipe operating system for you culinary professionals out there. What that means is that it is a place for you to house all of your recipes, to change them as necessary, to share them with your team, along with instructional photos and videos, if you like, as well as scale them up or down and derive whatever information you might need from them. Food costs, allergen data, yield loss, unit con conversions, and nutritional breakdowns. If you are a chef 
line cook, mixologist, operator, or in any way manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was created just for you. And it was created by a former chef and restaurateur who happens to be a friend of mine. Obviously, he's also uh, an advertiser here on the show, Josh Sharkey. I am telling you, he and his team have created something special. And Mies, the basic version, is free for the entire culinary industry. That's right. You can check out this wonderful tool at no expense, and I promise you will be glad you did. You can store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. And if you upgrade to premium, you can let Mies make your entire business more efficient and centralized. It will enable you to train and onboard team members, manage production, and even process invoices. Honestly, you need to check it out if you are at all involved in the hospitality industry. And as a listener of Andrew Talks to Chefs, you receive free 25 recipe uploads and breakdowns on your new Mies account if you sign up today. Learn more at GetMies, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. You can head there on your own if you're able to remember what I just read you, or you can visit the episode page for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you listen to podcasts and click through via the link there. So our guest today, as I say, is Brad Kilgore. Brad is a chef whom I'd known about for years. Many of you have probably heard his name, but we had never met. He is best known for his Miami restaurants like the late, great Altar, which held four stars from the Miami Herald. These days, he is operating the terrific Marigold's Brasserie at the Arlo Hotel Wynwood. He is also one of the creators of a recently launched direct-to-doorstep frozen pizza venture that goes by the brand Pizza Freak Co. I have had that pizza. It's great. It is linked to in today's show notes. And Brad also has a few things on tap that he discusses in our interview. I need to warn you before I launch the interview, and I guess I need to apologize. Years ago, I got some very helpful notes and reviews that pointed out that sometimes I talk too much. One of them actually headlined their Apple podcast review, Andrew Talks Too Much. Ouch. That hurt a little, but it was very helpful. All of those comments were helpful over the years. I have tried to adjust and if I don't manage to do it in real time, I do when I'm editing, cut out a lot of my own commentary and um, just uh, kind of off the cuff dialogue. Uh, listening back to this interview, I realized there are a few places where I talk a little more than Brad. And honestly, it's because we were getting to know each other during the few days I was there. We were kind of becoming friends. I got a little too comfortable, felt like we were just having a gab session where my going on would have been fine. And I kind of forgot I was hosting a guest on my show. Uh, I'm referring just to a portion of the interview where we get into the subjects of molecular and modernist cuisine. I left most of my comments in because I do think it's a good and useful conversation, but please, sincerely, I'm asking you, please forgive me if I do too much of the talking in that segment of the interview. 
I think that is all you know to get oriented for it. So without any further delay, let's get you to my conversation with Chef Brad Kilgore. Here you go. Brad, we're sitting here at, now I think most people would try to say Marigolds, but it's, sure. Mar, is it Marigolds? It's Marigolds okay, with a Y, Okay, even though yeah. there's no space between Mary and Golds. Correct. Okay, and this is technically Marigolds Brasserie? Yeah, yeah, brasserie is the term. Basically, you know, everyone can find something on the menu they like. That's what, that's what that means that, to you? That's what it means to me. Okay. That's what I thought about. Cool. Um, so I'm going to eat here later. Sure. I, I, I'm disadvantaged. All I've had of your food so far is a burger, although it was really great. <laughs> Thank you. It's got, what do you call it, a French onion? Yeah, French onion burger. It's, uh, I have a buddy who used to always say, you know, can you put a soup in a sandwich? And that's kind of where the stem from. So that was the challenge? That was the challenge, Okay, yeah. you met the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it's very cool. I have to just say before we get into it, I'm, I'm talking to you here about three hours before we're doing an event. You and I had never met. We tried to find time to do this interview a couple of weeks ago only, a few sure. weeks ago in yeah. New York. It didn't work out. And then I said, well, I'm going to be in Miami. And you texted me back for how long? And I said, well, not long because I'm doing a Pellegrino event, but I couldn't get a slot at a bookstore. And you texted me back. Now, again, we'd never met, but you texted me back. You want me to throw you an event? Yeah. <laughs> and we had never met. We hadn't. And yeah. Then, Where and does then, that come from? I mean, I... I was it, stunned in a good way, but I was, I was like, do I say yes to this? Like, I don't know. I just, uh, it sounded fun. sounded doing something a little bit different than our normal, you know, that going through dinner service. And yeah. um, I, I threw a curveball. I figured, why not? We're, we're here. You're going to be here. We do this every day. What's the difference, you know? And maybe I get to see some friends and people that we don't see on the norm come and hang out for the event so very cool that's where well, it came from I thank you for it of course well, um, and then we then we met then we met at, at Chef's Roll yeah, in San we, Diego we didn't have that yeah, planned yeah <laughs> yeah. but I mean prior to that I mean that was after you, we had said we're going to do this yeah, event together uh, zero degrees of connection until about four weeks ago and now yeah, many now we're joined have, at the hip yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll be starring in a cop show together soon okay uh, well, let's get right to it. Let's get to your story. Um, you've worked in some cool places. You've lived in some cool places. You've heard the show. The first thing I always want to know is tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what just kind of the, you know, broad strokes, yeah. what kind of the circumstances and vibe of your childhood was like. Sure. Um, you know, pretty normal blue collar suburbia outside of Kansas City. And um, my mom's a nurse. My dad owns his own business. He builds like control panels, uh, basically a mechanical, electrical engineer. And, you know, cooking and, and food wasn't really a part of my come up. Um, we really didn't sit down for dinner at five o'clock every single night as a family. Actually, never. I You kind of fended for yourself? We kind of fended for myself, ourselves. Yeah. Three brothers. Um, you know, mom was either going back to school or, or working and, and dad, you know, maybe coming home a little late. And um, I remember my dad had a couple recipes, if you will. Uh, chicken and dumplings was one. Uh, and, and these like pan fried potatoes that he made at, at this one pan. It's the only time he ever used it. That was really the extent. Was the stuff any good? The, those are the two. If you can say. He did two great things that he didn't touch good. anything else. Yeah. It just wasn't part of. Growing up, food wasn't like important, you know. Um, and then 
my best friend's older brother got a job at which we always tried to hang out with him you know he was cool he was older he got a job as a line cook at this breakfast brunch joint i was i must have been around 10 not even 11 because it was christmas break sixth grade and i took a job as a weekend dishwasher i never looked back you know so so that's 27 years ago i've been working in a kitchen ever since i think that is the most common path into a kitchen i really do i think you know somebody's teenage, got a job teenage job yep dishwashing and uh you fall in love with the kitchen before you kind of fall in love with Without the craft yeah the kitchen culture um you know sort of pirate i was definitely raised by the old brigade if you will um you know I had five years working in a kitchen experience before I was legally allowed to use a knife or a slicer, you know, because I... Five years. I started so young. I wasn't even 11 years old. You had to be 15 before you could start cutting things, you know. I remember the day they gave me two bags of red onions and a slicer and laughed at me while I cried, um, slicing 100 pounds of red onions. Um, I'm not even sure they needed them. Maybe they made soup or something. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Did you like the yeah. end? Of, did you want a certain degree of independence? Hundred percent. You know, I was either going to go to work and make my own paycheck, making like it was like three bucks an hour, or I was going to like clean out the gutters and do yard work with my dad. You know, around the house and my brothers for absolutely free. Uh, probably get yelled at a little bit and and not have any fun. So the independence of working in a restaurant, camaraderie, um, it was exciting. Yeah. You know, and it started. Hey, can you cut these biscuits? We're busy on the line. Oh, wait. So that little kid in the back, he just cut all the biscuits and, like, you know, didn't screw it up. Maybe he can do orange juice, too. You know, okay, juice the oranges. Now I'm, like, doing all their prep. Yeah. Because I'm excited to do it. Yeah. And uh, it probably just made their days easier. Yeah. Um, and then one of my earliest memories is one of the the chefs or the cooks, whatever, whatever they were called at that diner, went to go smoke a cigarette, and I made the Western omelet which was just a series of pre-chopped vegetables on oil on a flat top, and then you scramble it and fold it up. And he came back and tried to yell at me, and he, but it, it wasn't screwed up. And he goes, you know, come and get me next time. And I was like, well, this is really easy. Like, I can, I can stir onions on a sizzle pan, you know? So you just had a natural feel. Yeah, it didn't seem that complicated, you know? So fast forward all that, I continued dishwashing, then I started cooking. I worked at McDonald's for a summer. I worked at Little Caesars for probably a little longer than the summer. Um, and then I took a program in high school that was accelerated and later on accredited by the Beard Foundation and, and a few things. And This was like a vocational? It was a vocational So school. this was similar to like BOCES, places like that? Do yeah. you know that group? I've heard that, yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like you split your time center. between academics and Correct. You and leave your regular skill. high school and yeah. you go over there. You know, they had other um, forms of education like computers and stuff. And that teacher was an actual chef that basically took a step back from the kitchen to raise his family and treated it like well if I'm going to do this program I'm going to do it that makes myself proud if you will and I happened to be one of his first like couple classes that changed my life you know that showed me we were doing tasting menus in junior year you know things like that so um, I'm not an artist when it comes to like drawing or anything my mom's side of the family they're all artists in one way or another and uh, I think I started having fun with the food presentation and concept sort of that artistic route 
What, um, you know, when you start doing this, like all these jobs you just mentioned, you know, the breakfast place and the McDonald's, Little Caesars. Right. Um, you know, there are people who would say, um, not incorrectly, really, that it's not, that's not really cooking, you sure. know? But, yeah. but what I'm wondering is, you know, we're going to get into all this in a minute. You go on to work at places like Alinea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're sitting here in this nice restaurant in this hotel that you have. You've had a bunch of other places, you know, that are serious restaurants. You you were at one point the only four-star chef in Miami, yeah. or, you know, by the New York Times measurement. But when you're coming up and you're starting to take these classes, right, but you're, like, working, like, fast food jobs. Yep. What did you have in your head? Like, were you just thinking, like, you know, I come from kind of this, this is my background, this is kind of just going to be a job, or were you starting to watch things like the Food Network, or were you starting to look at Gourmet Magazine? Like, did you have, or buy cookbooks? Was any of the world you ended up in, even in your imagination at that point? Great question, and not until senior year in high school. So the, the fast food and the diners and all that stuff was before that. So you think you were just learning a trade? Just learning a trade. I, I never even really understood the difference between cook and chef at that point. We never went to a chef restaurant as a kid. So, um, and then into high school, I just didn't understand the difference until after that first year of that program. And then I start, I worked at a country club and I worked at the best steakhouse in the city. Um, and I got the itch, you know. Um, and then I started watching uh, Iron Chef, the Japanese version. Uh, by far, probably the most influential thing early in my career was the Japanese version of Iron Chef. Was it the food? Was it the comp- the competitive piece of it? Oh, man. What do you think it was that, like, lit your fire? I, competitiveness, I never really thought about it. That definitely was part of it. Uh, but just to see what these guys were coming up with, um, I think it was the creative. If it really the imagination. Sh- the imagination. So that that took food to another place for you. Correct. In your head. Correct. Yeah. Right. As opposed to meat and potatoes, basically. Hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, we were a meat and potatoes household. So yeah. Maybe even society, really. Yeah. In Kansas City. Did you play sports as a kid? I did. What'd you play? Uh, mainly football. Team stuff. Team stuff. Uh, yeah, I played them all at one point. You know, but but football is the longest yeah. tenure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not into high school though. High school, I got into restaurant culture a little bit too much and uh, was worried about going to work and, and hanging out. Right, yeah. understood. So, um, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the show, so I won't belabor it, but good team sports, I think, are great training for kitchen life. Right. I think when you're coming up like that brigade system, like there's a clear leader, there's clearly a leader underneath of him and there's a layer underneath of that and then there's you know your entry-level guys that want to go up that ladder I think a lot of us don't fit into that nine to five conforming into normal society I think that's why we kind of end up here Um, there's a lot of highly educated people that end up in the restaurants I'm not saying that but it's that sort of you fit and you know that there's another layer and you can earn it and you can earn it with respect and you can actually like tangibly see your success in a kitchen. And I think a lot of that has, with team sports, there's a lot of comparables. You know, you have your team captain, you've got, um, you know, all the layers to that. So that's a great comparison. Well, there's a goal, right? Like like broadly speaking, there's no score, right? But broadly speaking, as I understand it, I mean, the only job I've ever had in a restaurant is a busboy. But, uh, you know, at the end of the night, 
you do have a feeling that you either won or lost the you service. You feel like victorious, hopefully. Hopefully, right? right? Yeah. But you can also end a night feeling like, oh, we just, we just got killed. Totally botched it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you blame yourselves in the kitchen. You know, I'm thinking more of a younger me when, when it wasn't my restaurant. You know, you, you blame the front of the house. You blame this, you know. And then now it's where did this go wrong and how do we make sure that Just never happens? Just let's fix it. Yeah, that's all yeah. that matters. Uh, okay, so you start to get the, the you know, this new uh, kind of view of, the you know, the possibility of cooking, the imagination that can come into cooking. Um, were there any chefs early on, after you have that kind of moment, that, were there any styles of food or any, was there any chefs out in the country or outside the country that you saw that you kind of went like, oh, that... That looks really cool. Like, was yeah. there anyone who you really, for whatever reason, that resonated with you? Yeah, basically. I guess I would say who was like a North Star at that time. You know, Alex and Aki, Alex Talbot from Ideas and Food and his wife, Aki. Yep. Um, I religiously looked at their blog. Interesting. Like, every, get off work, come home. You know, it's, you didn't have a internet on your phone at that time, more or less, or at least I didn't. And I would open up and, and see if they posted that day. Um, and there was this like group of blogosphere chefs, um, and I was kind of one of them. Um, I was, I had, I had a blog, and we would connect, and we would talk, and this and that. And there was a couple guys I really looked up to, mainly them. Sean Brock had uh, it's called Ping Island Strike at that time, and uh, Shola from Studio Kitchen, and um, and then Alex. So those that was this like connection and communication happening and a sharing of of experimental you know techniques that i was really into that for a couple of years again i i had my own blog so it would like push me to do my own right. and then i had people i was 19 people were applying through the blog dms to like work for me and i'd have to tell them that i was a teenager and uh you know i'm still like on garmage you know That's and so funny <laughs> it was you That's know, a huge compliment it was and i was just experimenting so that sort of forward-thinking food um i started studying a lot on my own you know reading on food and cooking reading the science behind uh why things happen in the kitchen and uh, because i wanted to be able to manipulate them a little bit and, and create my own things um and there were guys doing that so i started watching those guys and that was probably the peak or the early peak of this molecular gastronomy run that we had. I have a question for yeah. you. I'm teaching a course at the Culinary Institute right now. Cool. And as we sit here, I'm in the midst of putting the finishing touches on it because I record my lectures, right? And I'm putting the finishing touches on my, the lecture I'm doing this week is about molecular slash modernist cuisine. Nice. Okay. <laughs> I'm curious what your take on this would be because if you go, there's so many terms out there you can ask 10 people, knowledgeable people, and you'll get 10 different answers, right? Right. I'm just curious, do you make a distinction between molecular and modernist? It, evol it evolved, yes. So to answer your question, yes. Molecular is dead, but it has evolved into what I think the same way I approach it, is I still know and understand all of those techniques, and I use them sometimes to make a Caesar salad or to make a pasta dish, but we're not putting it and shoving it in people's faces. So it's now evolved into basically something that helps you be more consistent, um, it helps you give a cool texture to something or, or a consistent presentation, but you're not 
like, look how many different types of bubbles and gels and glazes I can put on your plate, which that's what it was for a while, and that drove me for, for quite well, some time. Well, it's very seductive, right? Yeah. I mean, it was actually... Can we talk about this for one second? Because I'm really, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not to hijack your interview, but I think this will be interesting no, this for is listeners a huge part too. Of my, yeah. To me, where I net out is, I believe molecular gastronomy is essentially like what McGee yeah. and Thies and Harold Thies. McGee and Hervé Thies were the two. Yeah, those, but those I, are the two big ones. Yeah. And then I feel like that was trying to explain the things. Why the things we've been doing forever work? So, like, so, what is the at the cellular level? What's happening? What's happening? Not and that's just why like this is how you do was it. Amazing to me, yeah, and, right. and Hervé's uh, writings as well. I, I own all of them, read them all multiple times. It was, but see, that's the correct answer. But that's not the answer society took. Society took molecular gastronomy as foams and caviar. To me, that's the modernist piece. See, now modernist now is evolved into well. Let's look at like modernist cuisine. Now it's a real deep dive using real equipment that was in science laboratories for other reasons to understand, then manipulate, then hopefully create the best version of whatever that goal is. So right. that's how I see the modernist part of it and that evolution. It's, it's a maturing. It matured, you know, out of it. Because um, some people use those terms interchangeably. Yeah. Which I think is not right. Correct. Um, I guess there's a period where one kind of, like one opened the door for the other one. Yeah, I mean. But I, the second part of what you said, I t if I understood what you said, because I've been saying this for years. Yeah. I do not, whatever you want to call, I like molecular, whatever you want to call it, the early days that you described where people <laughs> were just going like, yeah. hey, I got this new toy. Look how crazy I yeah. can do it, yeah. I mean, it's very understandable because I think that was the biggest change that's ever happened to cooking you know it was because other stuff it got like, people excited yeah but everything before that was like okay now i'm using ingredients from thailand or it now, was fusion it was fusion yeah. or it was like i'm taking uh i mean every chef in the 90s right was like how I, tall can i get my food well yeah you're talking to someone who got his big break from alfred portali so that, that's you're reading I can't my mind say that yeah. but um but um, I remember sitting with him one day and he goes, is my food really that tall? Because someone had written like the hundredth piece. No, what I was going to say is, 90. it had always just been like the recipes had changed or here's a new ingredient or here's a new way to plate. Yeah. But the molecular modernist phase, it was actually new ways to All cook. All the techniques were the same, basically, is what you're saying. Grilling was grilling, roasting yeah, was roasting, yeah. boiling was boiling. Yeah, so maybe Now you we're saying we have a new boil. We have a new roast, but a, you know. Yeah, but, but a whole set of things. Correct. Yeah. We have a Sous -vide, new. Sous-vide, gels, yeah. purification. Uh, I it's can't not say just, it. The uh, transglutal. Reduced chicken jus and yeah. we're blanc anymore or yes. cream sauce. Right. We have right. We, the sauce that'll stand up on a plate and then you can swoop it around. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. As opposed to like I took a bare blanc and I put curry in it. Correct. Right. Which was like trotter, <laughs> right? You know, next A level. lot of people, but uh, that was what they were doing, yeah, right? That was modernist yeah. for a long time. Okay. So my feeling is that, whatever you call it, I don't believe, I think it was a mistake at the moment to think of it as a movement. I, I think it was a technological, meaning techniques, yeah. revolution within the culinary field, well, also, which eventually became absorbed just into the things that are available to a chef, yep. right? Because... 
yeah, and, and normalized. You can make a, yeah, because you can make it to your point. You can make a dish. There's a million cool things going on. It, it doesn't necessarily have a point of view. It doesn't necessarily taste that great. Yeah. Like you, you, this stuff should be deployed judiciously, right? Yep. And it can be combined. Like it's much more powerful to have a dish that uses conventional technique, but there's one flourish, right? That uses yeah. one I of call these. It the, the kicker. The yeah. kicker. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. You agree with what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I think, I think that's what it's turned into, and and in a great way, also. Out of necessity, you don't nowadays. You want to like completely steer away from the fact that that's what you're you do or in your became kitchen. like a dirty word. It became a dirty word. Yeah. yeah. Um, for me, it's just you know now I have a bag of more techniques and a, and a much deeper understanding of cooking in general. Um, what you know what's happening when when you're doing different things. So that same movement, as you mentioned, it was right around the time when like internet was becoming a household thing you know of course it's been around already but but like information was moving quickly and so you could see images of what other chefs were doing around the world at that time um and so i grasped onto chefs like like grant ackett sir sure. and donny luis adruiz and uh Aston blumenthal and of course front adria front adria I, I always think of this every time I thought of, or thought I thought of a technique, like created my own technique. The South Park episode where they just go over and over, and they said the Simpsons did it, the Simpsons did it, the Simpsons did it. So I remember I learned how to thicken oil with a, a form of edible glycerin, and I was like, well, now I can put this into an ISI canister, and I can aerate like confit garlic oil and serve it with the bread, and it'd be have height and texture and cool. He did that in like 1991. I was like five years old when Fran Andrea did that. So, oh yeah, I mean, the gig <laughs> was mid 80s, and you see people like you know who nobody talks about, David Burke, yeah, who's part of this generation that came up in the 80s, he right? Here like a month but ago. I found. Oh, did he? Yeah. You guys must have hit it off. Didn't have the chance. I was out of oh. town. I really wanted to meet him. He's yeah. such a fun guy, yeah. but. Um, you know, I found an article not uh, a couple of years ago, 1988, New York Times, about him, and he's talking about McGee. And if you think about what David Burke does, like the cheesecake lollipops yeah. and the like, there's stuff he does he early, yeah. that he called on that stuff. And nobody thinks of him even as being in the generation that does these things. That's true. He kind of ended you know, up where the rest of the world ended up before the rest of after, you know, he skipped the crazy phase. He did. And, and you said cheesecake lollipop. I immediately thought of the Fawley Pop from Dufresne. You know, that was revolutionary. Anything Wiley did, you know, was, as far as I was considered, you know, top uh, front page news. Yeah. Uh, when it came to his new dish or technique or salmon noodles or what have you. Um, yeah, Wiley, you know, there's somewhat similarity, a uh, little bit different in, in generation, but I was a chef de cuisine for Jean George, um, who has his own very particular set of recipes and techniques and it kind of like grounds you a little bit and he has his own way it's not french cooking at all um and i was there for a few years so i took a back seat on creativity focused on you know his recipes operations and things and kind of put some of the molecular stuff to the back burner but then i came out at bursting when it was my turn after that and uh, i think I think Wiley was sort of the same way. You know, he spent a lot of time with John George. And yeah. It was, it was when it was his turn. It was almost like handcuffs are off. Like let's explode. You know, and see what else we can do. 
Yeah. I mean, to me, Wiley, if you want to find one person who lived, like personifies the evolution of the, of the movement, I think it's Wiley. Yeah. Because he worked for guys like Alfred Portali, John George von Richten. Then he got very interested in the, the science of food. And yeah. then he carried it into, you know, I think a balanced kind of approach to things. 100%. And uh, was right there when it was all happening. What are the jobs that took you to the next level? Like, what, what did yeah. you set your sights on as places you wanted to learn? Yeah, I mean, I was in Kansas City. I was working at the American restaurant. It's kind of this iconic oh, restaurant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was there for a couple of years. And, Very cool. Um, uh, James Beard helped open that place. But, um, like, the four-star spot in KC. So then I get obsessed with uh, this modernist cuisine and, and molecular. And um, I got into Alenia. Uh, I was 21. Um, at that time, they said I was the youngest person they ever actually gave a job to and hired. Um, I was there for a few months. I wasn't there as long as I expected to be. I moved to Chicago for it, um, and it was it was amazing. I mean, you know, 24 courses. Some of the courses had 20 com components on it. Um, as intense as any work environment you could ever imagine, I would say, and especially in our industry. And um, I got pinged for this new place called L2O that was opening up sure. with Laurent Gras. And I always wanted to work for Ducasse, and I just knew I wasn't going to because I didn't speak any French, and I don't know, it just wasn't in my cards. And I was like, well, this is, I always wanted to work at Louis, Louis XV or Louis Quint's, um, and he was the chef there for many years. And um, I said, you know, I'd heard of him from San Francisco, but it was more of like, wow, let's go. So I interviewed, and you walk through the kitchen and the interview, and there's nothing I had seen like that kitchen. It was unbelievable. Um, Coming from Alinea, there was nothing you'd seen like that kitchen. Yeah, it was it was next level. Every station had its own combi oven, and it had a $150,000 freeze dryer, tile everywhere, stainless steel everywhere. It was just these, you know what I think when I hear all that? Yeah. It's doomed. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was no? ready and willing. Yeah. There's so much that's so. I mean, what's the price tag for that? I I don't know. I heard like seven million or I something. I mean, oh my god. Yeah. I who knows? Who knows what I? Yeah. What was real. Cool but it was place, crazy. Though. I ate yeah. there once. It was great. Uh, let's talk about Alinea for a second. Yeah. Uh, what year? Like, because I'm wondering when in its lifespan. Winter you were of there. 2007. Oh, so uh, they were like uh, still on the ascension. Yeah. Yeah, because they yeah. opened in 05, I think. Yeah, I think they were 21 in okay. the world. I think they had just gotten on the world's 50, but it was a little early. You're supposed yeah. to be like, quote, underlying rules of you got to be open three years to get on, but they made such an impact. And um, and uh, Grant was ill at that time, uh, but no one really knew it. And so um, he, was, he was going through chemo, which we all have, know now. Yeah. Um, for but people who don't know, he we, had uh, know, oral what, what, tongue cancer. What do we say? A, tongue? A tongue cancer. Tongue cancer. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, most you people know. listening to this probably know that, but sure. it's very, it's very well. He's written Documented about it. Yeah, books we're not talking out of school, right? Yeah. But you know, I didn't know it coming on as a new hire. I don't think. I think only a few of the sous chefs probably knew that something was up. I mean, that Grant worked through it. He worked through chemo, like he was there at work. On He's the an line. intense dude. Yeah. So. <laughs> crazy um how did you can I, I tell me if this i don't want to i don't mean any of it in either direction in a negative way yeah. right but of the people i know who have worked at alinea you don't seem to me to fit the profile of the of the prototypical <laughs> you just you don't seem that 
intense. I'm not saying yeah. you don't seem sure. like you love what you do or, you know, like we've been putting this event together and it's all been super professional. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But you don't have that, like, you know, that almost that frenet frenetic energy. You yeah, know, like if you meet think, someone uh, like, and these are all people I'm very friendly with, right? right. But like Dave Barron or you meet, uh, you know, Alex Stupak or, yep. you know, all these people who came up there. These are intense individuals. Right. You right. don't seem to have that kind of energy. How did how did you how did you fit in there? You know, I does was, that make sense? First, of it all? does. First of all, it really does. And and I'm still friends with with Mike and and Simon that were the chefs. And um, there is an air to that intensity that they have. Um, I think some of that. Don't get me wrong. Get me wrong. I wasn't there nearly as long as they were. So there's like, you know, you spend five to eight to 10 years, some of those guys there, you're gonna, you, you know, you become that sort of um, presence, you know? Um, so, you know, that's maybe why I wanted to explore other things after a few months too, you know? So um, I think that's a pretty good read. I was extremely intense and focused in my own way for many years probably through pandemic to be honest um, with alter and everything i had going on and it's not that i am not but i'm a father now i don't know i think i think just things evolve a little bit okay um but my approach on in the kitchen it's still the same it's just maybe dialed back a little bit vocally if you look back at those two restaurants right these are imp these were I mean, Alinea obviously is sure. like going to be in the history books, right? But El Tuol was a great restaurant. Yeah. Uh, what are your, what were your takeaways from each of them? Whether it was something culinarily, uh, whether it was something in terms of management, whether it was something just very broadly about food and what you wanted to do with it, like in the abstract. Grant's food was beyond, and I think I see some of it coming back these days. Of it, no one, no one cooked like him. No one saw food like him. His flavor combinations were just off the wall and incredible. And Laurent did not have off the wall flavor combinations, but he was so precision driven. Everything weighed to the tenth of a gram. Every recipe book typed up and put, there wasn't a drop of anything on any wall or floor or corner. He, he was robotic in his ways, and um, which made it not very personable, but I leaned towards that more um, and that structure. And I was there almost three years. And so I think what I picked, or I know what I picked up from working for Laurent was the accuracy and like the quiet intensity where he, he would go months without saying your name to your face. I mean, the first time he said my name to my face, I was part of the opening team. It, it was over five months after we opened. And the second time was like three months after that. And Had he talked to you directly at all? No. So it was all through his like yeah. sous chefs? Yeah, yeah. But his, his recipes that he put together, I watched him write a recipe, just write it down. And it was like for this bouillon, he called broth bouillon. and nailed it and it was percentages and he just knew them and I was like that's me that's the way I like this like that's numbers make sense to me and understanding understanding why is something that I've always been important to me yeah. so I was like I like that that's what I want to do you know so I have a question for you going back to the molecular thing right because yeah. this has been a thread through what you're talking about there's a great quote I came across not that long ago and it was by McGee, McGee. and I think it's really illustrates what a lot of people miss right and what it was is that molecular gastronomy was, I forget the 
first half of it, but it's something like a scientific approach to deliciousness. <laughs> and I think people often lose sight of, I think if you asked a lot of people who are no, no food, what does Harold, what, what Harold McGee do? And they'll just tell you science, 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 yeah. science, science. They don't say in service of deliciousness. The final goal of anything. No, I know, but you know yeah. what I mean? I think people lose sight of that. So here's my question, right? And you may tell me you've evolved so much that it's not the same now. I had this burger. I had your French onion I forget the exact French name. onion burger. French onion burger. Decadent. Yeah. What you just said, you're a numbers person. You like to have things controlled. You like the consistency of it. Do you apply that type of structure to something that eats in as decadent and extravagant a way as that burger? 1,000%. And, and there's you understand literally, the question. there's like a super... Because it doesn't look like something that's been yeah. super controlled. It looks like something that somebody just like... You know. And I think that's, for me, the art of it now. There, the cheese that was on your burger is like hyper-molecular gastronomy. How so? Well, it's a emulsion of three different cheeses set at a certain temperature and then cut out like a hockey puck and then brulee before you get it. And then, Wow. Yeah. So You mean it's like punched out? Correct. Like of a sheet? Yeah. Okay, and then that's put on top of the burger? Correct, and torched. And then, and torched. So, so you could get the brulee like a French onion right, soup. Right, so it doesn't go into a salamander, you its, actually torch it. Correct, it holds its shape like a free-form hot panna cotta, um, but it's absolutely molecular gastronomy. Quote, How about unquote. the burger? Do you do the like flip it every 15 second thing or anything like that? We only flip it once for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm a flip once guy. Okay. Yeah. I okay. think that's some of the old school, you know. Yeah, that's old yeah, school. Yeah, you only, only touch it once. No, right. no, never flip it back and forth. Okay. Do you know yeah. what I'm referring to though? When Wiley had Alder, it oh, was yeah. every 15 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He probably did a thin smash burger though. Probably. Maybe because I think he and uh, what's his, Kenji. Yeah. Uh, Kenji talks about like the thing about like the one turn is that's not like you actually get a more even cook if you go back and forth. I could see that. Yeah. Very much. Okay. So. Some, you know, some things like I love being old school about, you know, it's just like, I get it. you just like grasp onto it. And, like, I mean, I, like if you were going to roast a chicken, would you do it any differently than they did it 50 years ago? Probably. Yeah. Cause I love combi ovens. Okay. I'm like obsessed with them, you know? So, um, the, the combi oven itself is basically uh, a controlled environment, so it is a sous vide box, right. if you will. I love. You, I've never heard it described that way. I love that. Yeah. So I I don't sous vide proteins very often, but I control controlled temperature cook proteins all the time. And then so with a chicken, I would cook it undercooked, but with zero humidity to form a pellicle on its skin, and then I would approach it differently like that i love it yeah and to me it would just taste like a delicious roast chicken and just look like a roast looks like every other one especially I've ever at, here at Mer uh, brasserie that's the vibe we want to get off like how yeah. i got there don't worry about it just enjoy it. it's a caesar salad you know well, i'll but. tell you one of the best steaks i ever had was i still remember christmas eve years ago i went to commerce in new york city harold moore was the chef and classically trained like a guy who came up through like the kitchens of danielle and john george and the steak was like butter. It just, it was like butter. And he was there that, he was in the, he was actually sitting with his girlfriend at the time. And he came by our table and I said, that is one of the best steaks I ever had. And he goes, well, thanks a lot. People hate on it. And I said, why? And he goes, because I put it through a three-step process and one of the steps is sous vide. Yep. And people get mad about that. I don't tell anybody. That like people align quality and, and great food experiences with soft 
and creaminess. That's interesting. Is that your own conclusion? Yes, it has been for years. I had a friend, not a chef at all, dines at all the restaurants. He said people just, they, if they could eat a meal without their teeth, they would tell you it's the best meal they ever had. Wow. Yeah. Think about Do every, you remember when that hit you? Yeah, you know, the last couple of years, you know. Well, you don't remember like the moment years ago. you put something in your mouth or someone. Maybe no, it and it kind of, kind of leans you towards rich foods. Yeah. Buttery, rich, creamy yeah. things have that same texture. And people just, like you said, this steak was so amazing because it was tender. You didn't mention the flavor of it at all. So, like, should I, I thought about this. Like, should I just, like, sous vide everything until it's, like, mushy and then sear it so it's golden brown? And people go, wow, that was amazing. Maybe, I would say a major majority of the population would totally grasp onto that. Wow. I've never heard anyone say what you just said. I'm like, I'm thinking, I guess that's very true. Yeah. That, I mean, filet mignon, you filet want it mignon. to like basically melt in your tongue. If you, Even what are the cheeses people love? Tortellini. You give somebody a pasta and they're like, oh, it just melted in my mouth. Everything just melts in your mouth. So it just like dissipates. Well, you know what's that fun? was fantastic. When I, if I go to a restaurant, it's becoming a lost art. But if there's a cheese cart, <laughs> I always say I want... Uh, I want one, I want something like this. I want, you know, like I want an Alpine cheese. I want a this. I want a that. And then I always say, and I want one cheese that requires a spoon. You know, <laughs> yeah. I always say that, right? Because That's that to way. me is what, like, I want an Epoise. It's kind of like melting off of it onto the board. You know, it's just yeah. But that's the one that you're just like, oh, cream cheese. Cream cheese is like, cream cheese is one of my favorite things on the planet. It has to be Philadelphia, but. Yeah. It's so versatile. Wow. You've stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. That is great. Thank you for that. I've never heard of I never heard anyone say that. Now I have to really examine it. I wonder what it is psychologically. It must be something. It's pleasant. Maybe it's the tactile, the way it, you know, the way your palate Yeah, it like melts it. off. Right. I mean, think about a, a bite of the creamiest, best mac and cheese you've ever had or mashed potatoes you've ever had. It coats your palate. It coats your palate. And then it disappears, you know. So when I am trying to teach my team on how something tastes good, if and for me, this is how I approach it. If a bite is balanced, whether it be an individual sauce or an entire dish, you should put on your tongue, take a few bites, chew it, swallow, and then the amount of salt, acid, and maybe bitterness that create salivate should wash it away, and you kind of breathe out, and that's your bite. To me, that's how I try to balance my food. I love that. Yeah. You know what one of my most powerful taste memories is? Is years ago, Rocco Despirito, when he was at Union Pacific Restaurant, he did a fennel, a fennel seed creme brulee. Nice. Just tasted a fennel. I yeah. mean, there wasn't seed in it, yeah, right? Yeah. And, but it was served with like a little, I want to say like a little scoop of like, I think it was lime like a lime sorbet or a lime sherbet, something mm-hmm. like that. So you would take a bite of this fennel creme brulee, right? And, and, and it would just And it would linger, right? Yeah. yeah. And then if you, if you knew enough to alternate bites, then you would take a bite. It was like having a palate cleanser after every bite mm-hmm. of the creme brulee, right? And it would just blast your palate clean. And it's and like it, They both were intense, though, right? Yes. Yeah, there was... Um, but each would, bite of the creme brulee tasted like the first bite because you would completely... Cleansed your palate. Cleansed your palate. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. A, it was so intense. Uh, old, actually, as a culinary school teacher, I tried to make, because I started getting into, like, savory things uh, with sweets and stuff uh, 
when I was a teenager, I tried to make a spicy like Mexican chili chocolate ice cream, and uh, he goes. It, I, can, I can't even really taste the chili if you're going to say something's in it make sure it tastes like it and that just like never stopped I thought I thought of that guy last week when I was making something it just that'll never go away in yeah. my head so intensity like you know don't, don't back down like if you say it's there it better be there right yeah so how do you find your way down to Florida? <laughs> um, so, I'm from Florida yeah yeah and I always wonder it was how I mean the Miami I grew up in is not the Miami that you're living in and it wasn't when I got here either Um, I kind of like worked all the places I wanted to work in Chicago I after doing you know L2L and Elenia both got the three Michelin stars um, I, I went and got a management job, you know, at a new restaurant opening up, um, high volume, but still quality. And I executive sous chef, I was like 23 and I got my management chops and, you know, um, I was the youngest guy in the whole staff, but I had like 40 people underneath me that had its own fun challenges. And also I was really intense and I was, uh, I would just work circles around people and like, uh, probably verbally do it as well. And that would cause some issues and, and, but it, you know, I was growing up trying to figure out how to be a manager. Nobody, chef. Now they do, but like when you were coming up, nobody taught cooks how to become managers. No, they and just I, had to figure it out through experience. Yeah, you know, the chef would just be like, "Why don't you chill out so they don't quit?" But like, keep it up, you know. <laughs> like, chill out but keep it up at the same time, you know. Um, then uh, that the recession kind of hit, the oh eight oh nine hit, and uh, nobody was hiring. Restaurants were closing left and right. Everybody was slow and dead. We came down to Miami, my wife's Latin, and uh, she's from Central America, and we came down here to meet her family on a little vacation, and my father-in-law was like, listen, Miami is like, there's always something going on in here, down here, and there's, listen, this place had its own vibe. The whole country seemed dead and cold. It was winter, and businesses were closing, and down here, people were partying, and it was popping, and it was Miami, and... I'd been here as a kid, but I never experienced it as an adult. And I think within 90 days, we moved down here. I got a a job at uh, the first place that I wanted to sort of willing to work at was DB Bistro Modern with Daniel Balud. Um, And but they didn't have a sous chef position open. And I was like, I'm not I mean, I have like seven Michelin stars under my belt. And, you know, I just managed 50 people. I'm not going to go be a line cook, like in Miami, like what? So there was Azul at the Mandarin Oriental. Um, they just hired on this chef that, you know, they wanted to go for five stars. And so I started applying to that job and they're like, it might take some time. We're doing a t- transition. And so I needed a paycheck, you know? So I started working at DBB from Modern. And um, by the time I got here and this and that, I ended up giving them my two weeks on my fourth day because I got, I got the job that I really wanted. And, but this is funny. I'm going to loop it back to what we were talking about earlier. I saw them struggling to put the French fries in the, in the container, whatever bowl they had. And the line cook is either burning his hands like there's no tomorrow or using tongs and barely getting one or two in the tong at a time. And I had come up with this system at my last restaurant to take those quart containers that we use in the kitchens all the time, cut the bottom of it off, use it like a scoop because that's how we did it. Because you would work at McDonald's. McDonald's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I showed them that near my last day. Fast forward years later, I'm in Chicago for the Beard Awards. I'm in Royster's Kitchen with Danielle Balud. 
we bump into each other. Of course, this is he, one of Grant's restaurants for people who don't know. Yeah, we, you know, we're in, we're having a drink next to each other. He doesn't know who I am. I took the opportunity to like tap out on his shoulder, say hello, and I told him that that was my two week experience at his restaurant. He goes, "That was you." He goes, "Every one of my restaurants does that now," and I had no idea where it came from. And it's all because I spent the summer at McDonald's. That's great. Yeah, right. <laughs> But that's so non-snobby of you, right? right? That you had something from that. Hey, listen, whatever you think of the food, the operation is unbelievable. Without a doubt. You know, oh, a yeah. global business for generations. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, and it's always the same no matter where you go. Yeah, I mean, of it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's, 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 it's brilliant. And look at Shake Shack. You took Danny Meyer to do that, to go down that same path, so... Without a doubt, it's impressive. But that that coming full circle was uh, was pretty cool. That must have made your day hearing it that really from did. him. It really did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to get it in. So let's. Uh, I don't want to wrap. Uh, we still have some time, but yeah. Pizza Freak. Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of how we first connected. <laughs> totally. Uh, uh, the Matt, who's one of the people you're uh, in, my business partner, Matt McKinney, doing this with. Yeah. Yep. Who, I, who I see every year at the Philly Chef Conference. Right got in touch and he said I'm involved in this thing can I send you some samples and I went my wife and I went nuts for this stuff and then I'm not trying to name drop but I was a couple of weeks later I, I I spent two days with Danielle Balud because right. we're working on something together very random that these two stories are coming together too it's weird because yeah. it all you and I well you and like I said you and I are like what? I ran into him in New York and I said hey I'm going to send you some pizzas yeah at the food and wine thing yep. yeah and then he and texted me the day I was coming to, I was going to take the train up to his weekend place. And he goes, uh, you know, why don't you come up on this, you know, this train and, and, uh, and then we're going to have, we'll have pizza for lunch. And I'm like, why is he telling me we're having pizza? Like who plans ahead for pizza? <laughs> and then I got, he picks me up at the train station and in the back seat, he has the exact same delivery box that I had received. <laughs> and I go, that's the pizza. And he goes, yeah. I go, I just had that. Two weeks ago, so I got to have it again. So good. Thank but, you. Uh, I imagine this is going to tie back to the molecular thing in some fashion. But sure. the thing that blows my mind about, as you know, first of all, for a frozen pizza, it really does taste like something that came from a New York City slice shop. You know, and right. I mean that in the best way. No, hundred. Thank you. But what blew my mind is, I don't know what you call it, but like the 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 the, the crust the on the crispy bottom, crunchiness, the yeah. bottom though, the, yeah, bottom the bottom of it, yeah. And and the 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 tray that it sits in, right. There's a little bar across the middle of is it card? What is that? It's something yeah, that it's, can survive it, in the a, oven. It's an oven safe paper. Oven yeah, safe we paper. We call it the freak frame. Okay, I love that. <laughs> so you know, there's the outer frame, and then there's this little bar. In the middle, right, right, but then, other than that, the bottom of the pizza is exposed, right? Correct. Yeah. And, but when it comes out, it has that taste of something that went onto the slab in a 800 degree oven, sure. and has that perfect amount of crunchiness, just a hint of char, like it tastes like you just got it from a pizzeria, right? Absolutely. How did you? I mean, I don't want you to give away trade secrets, but how'd you get there? Well, if you could talk so, about it so, at all. So Pizza Frico is this project that came, you know, sort of out of pandemic. Matt, Matt and I, we've been friends for years talking about it. And 
we wanted to work on this thing. So obviously we couldn't travel. He had access to Drexel University's kitchen that he provides equipment for, Philly Chef Conference, you and I have both uh, been to multiple times. So he's like, hey, I've got this kitchen. Why don't you send me recipes? Well, this goes back to me literally, scientifically, writing recipes based on percentages that I know. So I sent him three. Different hydration levels, different types of flours, you know, different yeasts. But we also wanted to make sure this is something that, I mean, our goal is to make the best frozen pizza that's ever existed. And it's not a frozen pizza. It's a pizza that's frozen, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So it it's a different way of looking at it. Um, it is your rectangular shape, sort of focaccia s style, but very light version of it. And you get the crispy cheese around the outside, which is called a frico. But not all Americans are going to know the word frico. Not all. We realized <laughs> that we were pizza freaks, so pizza freakco is where this name came from, it. right? It's it's gotten real. You know, we've sold a lot. This week is by far our biggest week. Uh, a lot of movement, and it's drop shipped anywhere east of the Mississippi. You sell them by uh, groups of three. They come groups in of three. Yep. Somebody ordered twenty yesterday. Twenty uh, three packs? Uh, uh, no, a twenty pack. Oh, I didn't realize you had that. Yeah, okay. yeah. We sold a few of them. We put it on there, and, and our goal is, one, to be in, of course, all the households and get there eventually, but also at the same time with everything going on in restaurants, it's, it's a restaurant-quality product, and there's zero labor to it. So we're leaning into getting some of our friends to put it on. Um, I actually have a pop-up coming to Miami that I haven't announced yet that it'll be on the menu, too. But so. it can be on this show. It can be on the show, okay. absolutely. Yeah. So okay. um, how we got there, though, was with the goal in mind of ship it across the country, keep it frozen the whole time, any sort of household oven it comes out of, that you get that same experience. And the thing is, not to give away, but these frozen pizza companies are obsessed with it being a fresh dough that bakes in 20 minutes. Dough doesn't bake in 20 minutes. It takes all day to rise and then beat it down, then rise again, then you bake it. They're trying to chemically create that. Oh, that's why it's always raw. It's terrible. Um, ours doesn't go in the freezer unbaked. We've already done the quality baking process before it goes in. So I love that. That's great. It's, uh, I'm not just saying it. I mean, when I you. got it, I was like, all right, you know. Yeah. And then put it in the oven, and then took it out. Any, anyone listening can get it delivered to their house. Tell D people where to go. Me. Yeah. Uh, pizza Freako, Pizza F-R-E-A-K-C-O, yeah. exactly, is our Instagram. I'll link um, to it in the show notes, yeah. Thank you. It's on, on my bio as well. Um, we've been in, featured in Food & Wine Magazine uh, last month, Philadelphia Inquirer this month, and uh, Jeff Gordonaire from Esquire Magazine uh, gave us an uh, incredible, you know, nod as well to trying it you uh chef danielle uh just having him say something about our all of us instagram posted <laughs> yeah. yeah and you know we just sent them out to see what people would thought you know take feedback just beta testing basically but it's live it's out there and um our goal eventually is to be like delivered to your house almost like an uber eats thing within 10 to 15 minutes and, and pop them in your oven yeah good for you thank you it's really good and i live in new york city yeah you know i have an amazing <laughs> If you're out there, Norm's Pizza, I love you guys. There's a Norm's Pizza near me. I'm going to try that. Uh, it is so good. But, you know, I would just as happily have one of your guys' pizzas. It was, I mean, I, I, it was like, I felt like I just come from, like, my favorite local 
pizza place, you know? <laughs> I'll take that. And I sure. say that I'm a New Yorker because, come on. Come it's on. One of, it's one of the pizza cities of the United States. Right. Well, it's in your blood. Like, caring about pizza is, like, part of a lifestyle yeah. of a New Yorker. There you used know? to be this comic who talked about, like, one of the things that really made him angry as a New Yorker was if people ordered, like, Domino's or something. Yeah. He's like, you live in New York. Use the resources. <laughs> you know? Like, you have, why you do have we options. Even, why do we even have these places in New York? <laughs> you know? They're not even less expensive. Right. Th you know? These days, no. Uh, you've had a lot of successes down here. You're You're doing... You have this place now. Are you able to talk about what your kind of vision is for your next, the next kind of short yeah. term of your professional career? Sure, sure. Um, we're sitting in Marigold's Brasserie that we talked about. This is uh, kind of the new part of Wynwood. Wynwood is our Brooklyn, if you had to compare it, our Williamsburg. Uh, if I you think of it as the Abbott Kinney of Miami. That's the neighborhood in uh, I was gonna say, on maybe the west that's side of Los Angeles. Okay, all right. Yeah, I like that. Like the Venice near, like the Venice sure. Beach area. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So, you know, it's our edgier neighborhood, and um, we're in this new corner of it. We're kind of bringing this part together in the hotel, um, and I have a few other projects coming. I started looking, you know, not just in Miami, and some opportunities started coming. So we broke ground in Mexico and, and um, Puerto Escondido, which is like the West Coast kind of not Tulum-esque in the way of of how party it is. It's actually just more tranquil. Uh, yes. Really beautiful yeah. surf town. So I'll be doing all the concepts for that resort. Um, we have a wood fire concept where I, I embrace the local culture and ingredients and I'm doing an omakase surrounded by the ocean using their products and, and Mexican ingredients and flavors. And um, I also broke ground in Honduras. My wife's from Honduras and doing a... Uh, kind of a sort of Latin-inspired, wood-fired steakhouse, uh, Jasper Ovens. That's actually Q1 this year, uh, right around the corner uh, coming up. So wow. I'm very excited for that. And that's been my wife's hometown. How do you seem so calm with all this stuff going on? <laughs> Are you? Or is this an illusion? I am. I am. I, yeah. I feel very prepared for things. I spend a lot of time organizing myself. And, yeah. uh, so that gives you peace of mind. It does. Uh, 1,000%. That's how I approach my, my day of all these things is very organized back end with grammed out recipes and um, you know my, my prep sheets in the kitchen are color coded you know um, yeah you're one of those guys yeah, yeah exactly so that I should be able to kind of know where we're at by reading a few charts and, and sort of in a way yeah I get it um, can I ask you about the live fire thing we yeah. only have a couple minutes left yeah. uh, and listeners I'll, I'll, I'll cop to this I didn't realize that on my my recording disc which at one point had like over 100 hours of room on it. <laughs> I turned it on today and I had like an hour and three minutes. We got about four minutes. Uh, uh, and we also have an event to do. But um, Live Fire. Yep. It's compatibility with someone who's so into control. Precision. Precision. <laughs> measurements. Great question. Um, I think I know what the answer is, but what do, what is it? Mm. How do you how do you? And, and, and how I love that, how you how, haven't even asked the question, but I know where you're going. And well, like, it's I, just I, like yeah. how does that yeah. how does that work for you? So what I'm going to do and how I approach it is basically through marinating or combi oven or brining with percentages of salts. Basically, going to either manipulate whatever I want to the stage it needs right before it needs to get charred. And then also these 
Jasper Evans, some people like to run them at like, look, it goes a thousand degrees. Well, you put anything in a thousand degrees, it's probably going to burn. So I like to run it a little bit more controllable temperature, but that's really funny how you ask. It's I use it as a finishing element or a slow smoking element to add flavor. Um, a lot of the recipes we're doing are going to use the fire after the sh service is over. We're going to put things in the, the embers and the charcoal to smoke them and, and then turn them into Very things. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also seems to me you talked about precision. I mean, I know a lot of pizzaiolos, contemporary American pizzaiolos, right? And they love cooking. They love using wood. Yep. They love, like, once they get a, a, a bit of a mastery of it, they, it, they may have to work a little harder to get there each day, but they like that. And then they feel like they really, it's like driving stick instead of I'm driving an automatic. I need for pizza. For pizza, I think you're really just kind of doing yourself in. Um, it cooks so quickly that you're not getting the flavor from the aroma of the smoke. Got it. Um, I, I would go electric, or I actually have a, a Neapolitan pizza menu at one of my other properties. We use, we use gas. It's Love consistent. It. Yeah, I get it. And a 50-year-old sourdough starter that was handed down and maybe snuck out of a famous person's kitchen. That, so, so I've been told. So we do it right before we put it into a regular oven. Very cool. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for putting on an event for someone you'd never met when you <laughs> offered to put it on. I'm very touched by that. That's how um, the world goes around. Thanks yeah. for having me. And uh, come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you. And that is our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Brad Kilgore for joining me. If you find yourself in the Miami area or if you live there, go check out Marigolds by Brad Kilgore at the Arlo Winwood. The food there is excellent. Thank you also to Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals for their support. Try out their free basic version today by visiting getmeez.com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, and or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, which helps new listeners find the show. Our thanks as always to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.